Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Traed Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I would be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Respiratory Exchange. I'm your host, Peter Mazzone, the section head of the Thoracic Oncology Program for the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. My guest today is Dr. Umberto Choi. Dr. Choi established and currently directs our smoking cessation program in the Respiratory Institute and across the Cleveland Clinic health system. He's also the leader of operations for the Thoracic Oncology Program at Maine Campus. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Choi to talk to us today about smoking cessation. Welcome, Umberto. All right. Thanks so much. Umberto, I wonder maybe if you could just start by updating our listeners about the epidemiology of cigarette smoking in the United States. So uh, it's actually good news. You know, the prevalence of smoking among adults has been declining over the last 50 to 60 years. Uh, right now, we are, you know, at our lowest numbers. The numbers are around 12.5% more or less among adults, meaning uh, people who are 18 or older. It does vary from state to state. We do live uh, right here in Ohio in a state with a high prevalence, which is around 20%. But overall, among the states, one of the highest uh, prevalence uh, is in West Virginia, that is uh, around 23-24%, and one of the lowest is in Utah, which is around 5.6%. Are there any particular groups that are maybe more vulnerable or more likely to smoke than, than others? Yeah, there are several groups that have a, a higher prevalence than say, the, the average nationwide or locally. For example, uh, groups in uh, lower income, uh, people who had a lower level of academic education, um, uh, minorities, uh, LGBT groups, those are groups that mm-hmm. tend to have a higher uh, pre- average prevalence of uh, smoking um, uh, compared to others. I see. Well, it's great news that the percentage of individual smoking is down, but it's still obvious that more work needs to be done. Uh, with all that's already been known about the downsides of cigarette smoking, and we still have people who smoke, what would you say to your patients about the benefits of smoking cessation? Well, over uh, several years, we learned so much about the potential harms uh, from uh, smoking. And I think those are the things that I would probably discuss with uh, my patients. Just looking at the, the most common reasons uh, of death in the United States, uh, six of them are related to, to smoking. For example, heart disease, cancer, a stroke, COPD, and infections like influenza or having a pneumonia, they're all related to uh, smoking. And over the last two years, you know, we had the COVID-19 pandemic, and we know that the risk of having a severe form of infection leading to hospitalization or even death is actually higher when someone smokes. So I would probably go over those uh, problems that are related, associated with, uh, with smoking. And, and that's the benefit of touching on uh, tobacco treatment, you know, and advising someone to quit and offering the resources that someone can have uh, available uh, at their site to motivate someone to quit and offer tobacco treatment because the risk of having heart disease, the risk of having cancer, cardiovascular disease or lung disease 
is going to be lower when we help them uh, quit. Now you, you probably had patients who are currently smoking and you describe these benefits and, and maybe they say to you, Doc, I've smoked long enough. You know, it is what it is now. Can you reassure them that quitting will still impact their health? Yes, you know, and I think my, my mantra is that really it's never too late to quit and sooner the better. And uh, even when someone already has a, a established heart disease or lung disease, they'll still benefit from, from quitting. So there's a lot of reasons to, to help someone uh, to quit. And the, the, the treatment is really a combination of things. There is no one thing that will benefit everyone. There's no one size fits all. And it's important to try to individualize the, the treatment as much as possible. And the word is really a combination, you know, uh, uh, offering pharmacotherapy combined with uh, behavioral therapy and other therapies that can help someone go through the process the best way they can. So that's the key word, try to combine things, combine counseling. It's very strong counseling combined with pharmacotherapy that may include nicotine replacement therapy or medications like varenicline combined with behavioral therapy and other therapies that someone may have available uh, at their site. Here at the Cleveland Clinic, something that we try to, to promote is having a visit with a clinician to go over medical problems and go over uh, medications uh, when it comes to that and explain very carefully how the, those medications or a nicotine replacement can be used. And we have a group of health coaches that help uh, motivate uh, patients and troubleshoot problems that come along the way. And uh, we try to combine that with uh, wellness programs that help with stress management, with uh, weight management, along uh, other problems that, that someone can face with trying to quit smoking. Well, that sounds like a great program for sure. With all these tools available, we still have individuals who have a very difficult time quitting. What, what are some of the challenges that you found in trying to treat an individual who's tobacco or nicotine dependent? Well, we can uh, talk about uh, challenges about in smoking cessation <laughs> the entire day, uh, but I'll just go over a few. Uh, uh, first of all, you know, nicotine dependence is, is a very strong form of addiction and is very difficult to treat, meaning that there will be relapses. Often the first uh, attempt is not successful and, and may require someone to try multiple times. So that can be frustrating for clinicians, it can be frustrating for patients. So just the process itself is uh, very difficult. Uh, so one of the guidelines that, that uh, has been very popular from the early 2000s uh, talked about you know, uh, asking if someone smokes and then providing advice and assessing if they are ready or not. And uh, that kind of uh, translates into a somewhat passive behavior when a clinician is trying to approach uh, someone and something that we would like to see more and more is try to, trying to be more proactive. You know, reg regardless if someone feels that they are ready or, or not, if they're motivated or not, we should be very proactive and offer treatment. And, you know, the first attempt that we offer may not be successful, but, you know, being proactive and going over, over and over, you know, at some point uh, uh, we will be. And another challenge is that uh, there there are many clinicians out there with training for tobacco treatment, so there, there is a, some understanding of what should be done, um, but talking to many healthcare professionals, you know, I know that a lot of them do not have a formal training in addiction medicine or in nicotine dependence, so I, th I think that's uh, one of the things that uh, will be very helpful to, to see more uh, in the future. 
And on the patient side, uh, something that we'll see uh, often in, uh, in our program and in, in any program, the no-show rates are high, uh, patients will resist, um, and, and that's why on, on our end is our objective to make as, as easy as possible, as accessible as possible, and try to address misconceptions about treatments you know, uh, at, at any point when they come up. So uh, I'll say there are so many challenges, and I think any program, any, any professional dealing with tobacco treatment just needs to be very flexible, be very open to trying to, to come up with solutions for many challenges that can come up from uh, a program structure from the patient and or any other challenge that uh, they may face. That's fabulous. Now, it's hard to talk about smoking cessation and, and nicotine dependence nowadays without talking about vaping. Where do we stand with vaping? You know, is it a safer alternative to combustible cigarettes? Good question. So this is something that we have been dealing with over the last few years. Vaping is a one word that uh, includes different devices and methods of using uh, nicotine. Typically refers to um, the use of an electronic device, and the, uh, in general, they have the same thing as a power source that tends to be a battery, and the use of uh, a liquid that people call illiquid or juice that often contains uh, nicotine. But Vaping and these electronic cigarettes, they are very different, and there are several different types and different generations of them, and uh, most of them do contain nicotine, but they may contain cannabinoids, uh, synthetic cannabinoids, um, a CBD, a THC, and now uh, synthetic uh, nicotine as well. So they include uh, different kind of devices and different methods of uh, uh, using them, and the companies that manufacture them, they're using the same strategy that they use, uh, that tobacco companies use back in the 50s and 60s trying to promote that this is something that, that could be a, a, a safe thing to do or now a safer alternative to, to smoking. And I think it's very early for us to, to, to say something like that. It's a very strong statement to, to, to promote electronic cigarettes and vaping as a safe alternative. It's something that uh, we saw uh, back in 2019, before COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of our attention was directed to vaping because there was an outbreak of acute lung injury and ARDS that was associated with vaping, uh, among many other things that, that we saw uh, that were connected to the use of electronic cigarettes and, uh, and vaping. So vaping and uh, electronic cigarettes that contain uh, nicotine, they can help some people to, to quit but it's not by any means right now uh, a tobacco treatment alternative to uh, the other forms of treatment that we already have well established. And it, uh, we don't call it that is a, a safer alternative to, to, to smoking. That's very interesting. We hear a lot of uh, different opinions on that topic, even in different parts of the world. They seem to uh, accept these products as uh, aids to help quit smoking more than we do here in the United States at this time. What, what are the potential harms of vaping that keep it perhaps from being uh, that alternative we're looking for? I think what, what you mentioned is really uh, some of the, the challenges that we see uh, that are associated with uh, vaping. Uh, one is that is a very socially well accepted, you know, in different parts of the world and uh, in the community, people just accept a lot more uh, that someone will vape compared to someone who is uh, smoking. And there's a lot of um, uh, misconceptions and misinformation around vaping. 
in terms of potential harms, uh, addiction itself is probably the most uh, common one and uh, often underestimated. These products that they are developed with uh, nicotine, especially, they are always trying to, to come up with new products that uh, have a very high content of nicotine and finding a way that they can, that high level nicotine can go to the brain uh, as fast as possible, as quick as possible. And this is what uh, would determine how addictive a product uh, can be. Some of these electronic cigarettes might have the same content of nicotine as a full pack of cigarettes, and that massive amount of nicotine can go to the brain very quickly. So uh, that's how we see someone very young, like a teenager whose brain is still developing, can get hooked uh, very quickly uh, to these products because of the the dose of nicotine that uh, they may contain and how fast that can achieve uh, the brain. And something that we touched on before uh, in terms of the other potential harms was really what we saw in 2019 uh, when we had this outbreak of uh, acute lung injury and ARDS. There were more than 2,000 uh, mostly young people hospitalized and, and, and several deaths related to, to electronic cigarettes. So there are potential harms uh, for that that can be very mild, like someone having a cough, having uh, just some uh, abnormal x-rays or CT scans without any symptoms, all the way to someone having acute lung injury, respiratory failure, ARDS, uh, and even death uh, coming from that. Well, lots to think about. Tell me, where, where do you see this going? What's the next step in, in research, treatments, policies? How are we going to get to the uh, no cigarette smoking status that we'd lo all love to see? Yeah, so this is a, a, a very interesting field to be in right now. There's so much going on, especially in terms of uh, policy. On the clinical side, I think we are craving for a new breakthrough uh, treatments uh, and a lot of things that we don't know, uh, especially when it comes to young adults and uh, teenagers. Uh, we are seeing so many young people uh, who are highly addicted to, to nicotine and some of the pharmacotherapy that we have available are actually not effective uh, in that uh, age group. So I think we need to explore more how we can treat, especially teenagers who are addicted to, to nicotine through uh, vaping. Uh, and as we touched on before, uh, vaping includes the use of other products, not only nicotine, like THC, CBD, and uh, synthetic cannabinoids and, and synthetic nicotine. So this opened, you know, a higher need to investigate how we can treat uh, disorders related to all these substances as, as well. On the other side, in terms of policies, policies and legislations, there have been several advances over the last few years. Uh, something that happened two years ago was the banning of a flavoring of some flavoring on electronic cigarettes and on some products. Uh, this was not a very comprehensive legislation, but I'll say it's a, it's a good start. So it's a good recognition that a flavoring especially can be very harmful. So I was glad to see that there was a push uh, for that, but hopefully we can see a little bit more in the next few months uh, and years. And uh, something that happened uh, that there was a lot of push uh, for a long time was really Tobacco 21. Now, uh, over 50 states and U.S. territories, it's illegal to sell tobacco products for anyone who is uh, younger than 21 years of, of age. Uh, so I think this was a big win for, for everyone when that was passed. But whenever we see a win, we see loopholes. 
So something that we saw happening was that the companies that were making especially electronic cigarettes, they found that loophole that, and the term was, was really a tobacco product. So you can't sell tobacco product to anyone who is uh, younger than, than 21. You, you can't sell something that you don't call a tobacco product. So that opened the, the field for the, the synthetic uh, nicotine products because what they advertise is that it's not a tobacco product, so it would not be under that legislation. Now, uh, synthetic nicotine products are under the FDA oversight, so I'm excited to see what happens next with that. Well, that's really fascinating. I've seen other countries as well with policies and goals of less than 5%, and they seem you know, really to be getting there. And as much as all these additional treatments will be helpful, it, it seems without these... Uh, really uh, life-saving policies in place where we're just not going to get where you want to be. Right, right. And, you know, there are so many things that have happened over the last few years. Uh, it's very early to say how much impact they will have in the prevalence of smoking and, and vaping uh, use. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, they will be impactful and we'll see some good results in the next few years. Oh, fabulous. Well, if, I, if I had to summarize, if I had to say that here's a few takeaways for the audience. Maybe unlike most smoking cessation conversations that you've had, uh, one would be there is good news that, that the cigarette smoking rate is down and has continued to decline over time. But there are still some groups that are a little underrepresented in, in that benefit and still smoke more than the average across the country. The second I took away is that we have lots of tools to help these folks. None of them are great. None of them are home runs, but they are proven helpful in making them uh, as accessible and convenient to engage in smoking cessation programs as possible uh, really should be uh, one of our major goals. And then the final is that vaping is potential benefit, but also potential harm of which the magnitude is really not known. And so maybe a little too soon to have uh, it in a place in a smoking cessation algorithm. Lots of hope for the future. Anything I may have missed there? Anything you would like to add as a final takeaway? I think that's exactly it. Tobacco is something that we learn a lot over the last 50 and 60 years. I think what we're seeing now compared to, you know, 50 years ago are just a lot of good news, but there's still a lot of work to do. There are a lot of new things like a vaping that uh, will be a, a new challenge, but we are up to that. And, you know, we are uh, very optimistic that hopefully we'll continue to do this work and hopefully this uh, smoking rates will continue to decline over the, uh, the next few years. Well, that's great. Well, I just want to thank you again, Dr. Choi, for, uh, for joining us on the podcast today. This information has been extremely helpful for our listeners, I'm sure. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange. For more stories and information from Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at Dwake MD. Thank you.